I would love to have you take your Bibles, if you have one handy there, and turn with me to the book of Hebrews, chapter 5. We will need the last couple of verses of chapter 6 as well. But if you'd go with me, first of all, to chapter 5, and then the sermon notes in your bulletin, I am confident, will be a, a help to you today. So back in 2016... Uh, a movie came out <clears throat> that I think about from time to time when I uh, want to be amazed at the human brain. The movie was called Hidden Figures. Some of you saw it, I would hope. Um, no, you did, some of you. Told the story of, of NASA and the critical role of three ladies who were really, really good at math. Uh, African-American ladies back in the days when ladies went to, to work wearing skirts, they were called computers in a skirt, and their role was especially important because there were some other people doing math trying to aim at the moon. And if you missed it by one degree, you're just going to keep going, like, till Jesus comes. You're going to go. And those who were going to ride in that little capsule found it very important to have skilled people doing math. Others of us uh, live in a world that is mostly inhabited by close enough. Um, I don't need all the details, especially when you start doing num uh, letters instead of numbers for math. It's been a few years since I did math, and once you started doing letters and odd figures, it's like, okay, I'm out. How much of this do ruining it for all the kids who are still studying math. But the way God wired my brain uh, was, was once we got into that stuff, it's like, all right, um, am I done? Am I done here? Thank you so much. I'll go back to literature class. Now you're talking. It's words. I know what to do with words. Well, details. Some people love details, and some people maybe less so. And we are, we are in a book of the Bible that gives details, not about hitting the moon, but about arriving in the presence of God and why it matters. And in this whole study of what Jesus did for us on the cross and how this business of, of us drawing near to a holy God, how it works, is so important to us. So whether you love details or maybe a little less so, the book of Hebrews is just loaded with information that, that even more important than getting you to the moon, somebody, it's about getting you to heaven. And how does it work? And how can I get there? And so today, it's that kind of a study and heading us into a portion of, of God's word here where there are a lot of details related to Old Testament things that some people just look at and go, oh no, it's related to the Old Testament again, and I keep going to sleep with that. Try to read the Bible before I go to bed, and I can't get past Leviticus 3. And, and you might want to read that before uh, it's time to go to bed. But, but it helps you understand the Old Testament. We're going to see that this morning. But all of this for today, under the heading, Christ is a greater high priest than any human. And my goal today is not just to give details, oh dear people. My goal today is that all of us would see in this text the glory of Christ as our high priest. And that we would hear his invitation to draw near to God. Draw near through him. That, that, and that we would respond to that invitation. Of course, we'll conclude our service uh, toward the end, celebrating communion, remembering the work of Christ for us. So I would love to pray for us as we come to God's word, and then we'll read the text and look at a whole number of things together. What is it that Jesus came to do? So pray with me, please. Our Father, how good it is to come with the people of God and to open the word of God. We live in a world where there are really a lot of words um, 
things said from one platform or another. What do you believe? What do you trust? Our Father, to open the word of God and to hear the words of the living God, inerrant, inspired, authoritative, clear, and here have our souls fed. Father, I pray that you would help us today. Give us ears to hear, help us to understand, to love what we hear, and to love Christ uh, at whom the text points so clearly. So, Father, we, we open ourselves uh, to you, the work of the Spirit of God in the Word of God now. In Jesus' name, amen. On your sermon notes, of course, a few words of reminder. That first one, especially important because it gives you a little bit of information about the progression of thought in our study of Hebrews so far and where we're going. So be sure to take a look at that. Uh, for for my purposes today, I want to focus on chapter 5, 1 through 10. That's our preaching text for the day. But I want to begin reading at chapter 4, verse 14, because it's really a continued thought. And looking at what we did last week with Pastor Ben, the conclusion of chapter 4, I think will pave the way to where we want to go today. So, so I'm going to read starting at that point uh, as we hear God's word together. Hebrews 4, starting verse 14, we read, Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then, with confidence, draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. For every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God, to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. He can deal gently with the ignorant and wayward since he himself is beset with weakness. Because of this, he is obligated to offer sacrifice for his own sins, just as he does for those of the people. And no one takes this honor for himself, but only when called by God, just as Aaron was. So also Christ did not exalt himself to be made a high priest, but was appointed by him who said to him, you are my son, today I have begotten you. As he says also in another place, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him, being designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. All right. Well, remember I mentioned uh, a lot of details in the movie Hidden Figures and Mathematics and so on? There are details in the book of Hebrews. And this is going to continue some of these details for some chapters to come because God, through his human writer, believes that if you're planning to spend eternity in heaven, you should have some idea how you got there. And so details, 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 this is really good for all of us. Now, the way the text breaks down 
And the way I'm going to present this in the sections, as you see described, the first four verses point to the Old Testament system with human high priests. So we'll say a few things about that. Then there's a transition marked at the beginning of verse 5, where we start looking at Christ. Christ is the greater high priest. Christ is the greater one who, who has saved us. And then more details about Christ as our perfect high priest in verses 7 through 10. I would suggest to you verse 9 is the key point. That's where the whole text is going. That's the hinge of the whole, of the whole text. Christ is the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. It's pointing to Christ as the perfect high priest, the one alone who is able to save. So that's kind of what we want to do. And uh, I, I think it will be good for us. So my first section then is that is, is looking at verses one through four and a quick crash course in, in understanding the Old Testament high priest system. Now, Old Testament, uh, oh my goodness sakes, 1400 years or so prior to New Testament times, God through Moses outlined this whole system by which people could draw near to God. And it involves uh, priests and involved animal sacrifices and all kinds of things, special days, Sabbaths, some of those we have spoken about. But, but, but please, a couple of things, not on your notes, okay? Twelve tribes of Israel, it was the tribe of Levi that was designated by God to be the priestly group. That was their job. Um, the tribe of Levi, the priests. Now, God is the one who chose High priests. So one high priest at a time among a whole bunch of other priests. All right? Get the picture on this. It really does matter. So so Levites, priests, one high priest. Aaron was the first, and he was followed by a number of others. Some would say uh, in the mid-80s, 80, 80-some high priests from Aaron to the destruction of the temple by the Romans in A.D. 70. Okay, so some interruptions along the way, but 80-some high priests and a myriad of other normal priests. Okay, so that's kind of a bit of a background. Now, the text mentions several things, and I've outlined these for you here, all under the heading, God ordained human high priests as forerunners. That is, they're all, supposed, uh, they're all pointing to Christ, all of them. They're pointing to Christ as the greater high priest. So Old Testament high priests had true humanity. Specifically, chapter 5, verse 1, they were chosen from among men. They were humans. They were real humans. All of this paving the way for Christ. They were representatives of the people they served. That is, they were chosen from among men to act on behalf of others, behalf of men and women, the whole nation of Israel. So they were representatives. So when the, when the high priest went into the Holy of Holies, and again, if this is fuzzy to you, stick around, okay? By the time we get done with Hebrews, you'll be, you'll be talking about Holy of Holies and High Praise and Melchizedek just over lunch. Um, and you'll know what you're talking about if you stick around with this. It, it, you'll learn a bit. But, but when the high priest went into the Holy of Holies on Yom Kippur, Day of Atonement, to, to sprinkle blood on the mercy seat, Ark of the Covenant, on that special day once a year, he was representing all of God's people. That's, that was his role. It was a humbling role that one day a year, Day of Atonement, the high priest stepped into that that one room that represented the very presence of God, and he sprinkled blood. But that was a very important moment, uh, covering the sin of people for another year. 
until the next day of atonement when he did it again and again and again. Animal sacrifice is necessary until Jesus came, as we'll see. So he was a representative, true human, a representative of the, of the people that he served, and he was an intercessor of grace, I called him, that phrase at the end of verse 1, to offer gifts and sacrifices for sin. Sometimes in studying the Bible, if you've done much of that in your life, you sometimes hear the Old Testament uh, under the heading of law and the New Testament under the heading of grace. And I understand what is intended by that, but I push back at least uh, probably both hands at the idea that grace is only in the New Testament, at the implication of that. I know the emphasis and I get the point, but, but listen, grace, grace has been dispensed by God from the very beginning, right? From the very beginning in the Garden of Eden when Adam and Eve sinned and were separated from God and right there in Genesis 3, God made a promise. It was a, it was a shadowy promise. He made a promise of a Savior to come. Listen, that was grace from the very beginning. There was never a time when people could earn it the old-fashioned way before God through law. No, nobody ever did. Nobody ever could have. It's been grace from the very beginning. The mercy of God even in animal sacrifices. There was a way by which sinful people could approach him. That's, that's grace. So the Old Testament high priests were intercessors of grace. I do understand a fuller representation of grace in the New Testament. Got it. Believe it. Yes. But I don't like us to think of the Old Testament as a desert of grace. Not true. Really not true. Old Testament priests, as is represented in verses 2 and 3, could be sympathetic toward those they served because they knew what it was like to be tempted. And this is a good thing. So, so when a, a, a person would commit a sin and bring an offering uh, to a priest, of course the text is all about the high priest, but to any other of the Levites, the Levite or the high priest, whichever the case may be, wouldn't have looked at that person and said, you did What? I can't believe that. No, because every person serving as a priest was also a human and knew what it was to be tempted. So there was no room whatsoever for shock, shock and awe. I can't believe it. Hey, everybody, get a load of this. A sinner came today. Yep, all of them, and you too. And that's the point of verses 2 and 3. Uh, these high priests, Old Testament, they could deal gently with the ignorant and wayward since they, they, were, they were beset with weakness too. Oh, this is so good. Now, um, that final little bullet point. Old Testament priests were appointed by God. This is verse 4. They didn't volunteer. They didn't run for office. They didn't fill out a job application. Uh, sometimes today people, parents, say to their kids uh, something I would I would... In, in my humble opinion, I would say you probably shouldn't say to your kids. They say, you know what, honey? You can be anything. Well, I don't know about that. If you're not genetically predisposed to be six foot nine, you're probably never going to play in the NBA, no matter how much you try. I know Isaiah Thomas was 5'8". He's the exception, okay? Probably not going to happen again. Uh, so, so the whole idea that you can just be anything, it certainly wasn't true with the high priest. You could aspire to be the high priest. You could run for, well, you didn't run for office. You could really, really want the role. But if God didn't appoint you to be it, you were never going to be it, okay? 
So you didn't volunteer, you didn't fill out a job application, there were no job fairs for high priests. Hey, I qualify, I'd be a good one. Uh, don't, even, don't even bother. God chose the high priest. Aaron was the first, and all the successors down through the, through the years, those 80-some, until the conclusion of the temple, um, God chose them. They were designated by God. Now, verses 1 to 4 then are a crash course in Old Testament high priestology. Okay? And then chapter 5, verse 5, points to Christ. So then, so also Christ. And now we begin to look at him. And there's a contrast beginning to build. Those were the, that was the human system. God ordained. The Old Testament is about human high priests. God ordained it. But all of it was intended to come then to verse 5. So also Christ did not exalt himself to be made a high priest, but was appointed by him who said to him, you're my son, today I have begotten you. That's a quote from Psalm 2. The next quote in verse 6 is from Psalm 110, a royal psalm, a kingly psalm. Some have called it as they study. And you look at your sermon notes, you see my heading. So first, God ordained human high priests as forerunners. Indeed, there was a point to it. And now the second element, God the Father appointed God the Son to be our forever high priest. Now, listen carefully. I've alluded to some of these elements of theology in past sermons. Oh, I hope you pay attention to these. Okay? Theology of God. I've mentioned in the past that in the Trinity, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, there are a couple things you should know, uh, more than that, but these two in particular. Uh, The Bible teaches that all those partners in the Trinity, so to speak, are equal, co-equal, theologians have said, co-equal in glory, fully God, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. So in terms of being totally equal, the Bible also describes economy in the Trinity. What do you mean? Function, role. That is, as described in the Bible, As I've quoted a couple of times, it's from Awana. That's why I memorized it years ago. 1 John 4.14, the Father sent the Son to be the Savior of the world. The Father sent. The Father sent. The Son obeyed. So the Father sends. The Son, in his incarnation, obeyed fully the will of the Father. John 14 and 15, Jesus describes the Holy Spirit proceeding from the Father and the Son. So in the, in, in the Trinity, you have full equality and roles. In his humanity, Christ submitted himself fully to the Father. Sometimes people have the idea that to submit to anybody is to declare inequality. That would be an affront to God, who models that. The Father sends the Son, and the Son doesn't say, hey, do I get to vote? No, fully submitted to the Father. Submission is not a human construct. It's a theological construct based on God. You can think about that over coffee. The Father sends the Son to be the Savior of the world. The Holy Spirit proceeds from the Father and the Son. Perfect unity. Now, So I have in front of you, God the Father appointed the Son to be our forever high priest. That, what I just described, makes sense out of verse 5. Christ did not exalt himself to be made high priest, but was appointed 
by him who said to him, by the father who said to him, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. If you look at your study notes, several points of emphasis here, please. So Christ was not simply a human high priest, uh, but even greater, a son. That's the emphasis of the text. We've seen this, saw this in chapter 1 of Hebrews. The emphasis on the Son. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The the exaltation of the Son, as described in, in Hebrews 1. So here, Christ, not simply a human high priest, but even greater, even greater, a Son. A Son. Today I have begotten you in his incarnation. Now, my next little bullet point. Christ was appointed by the Father in his incarnation, approved through his earthly ministry and atonement, now exalted, I'm quoting here 1 Peter 3, as you see, exalted at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. Now, there's another element, oh man, remember details? I promised some details, hidden figures, so here you go. Um, Both in this these two verses and in the, uh, the the text that follows that we'll be in in a moment. There are a couple of details about the, about Christ that I think are helpful to think about. Theologians often talk about Christ's active obedience and his passive obedience. Maybe those are terms you're familiar with. Maybe they're not. In some of our uh, circles, we 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 don't say much about the the, the life of Christ in, uh, in in that sense. We talk more about his death, burial, and resurrection. Correctly so. That's good. But we can overlook the value of his perfect life. When we speak of Christ's active obedience, we're speaking about his, his, the righteousness of perfect obedience through his life. Active obedience, where he he submitted moment by moment to the will of the Father. Okay? Christ's active obedience. Christ's passive obedience points to his redemptive work on the cross when he was bearing the weight of the world. Okay, so we'll pass it. Well, I know it's a theological term. Is, is People talk about it that way. But he was, he was submitting in that sense by being nailed to a cross as our sin bearer and representative. Christ's active obedience Christ's passive obedience. Is there value to his active obedience? Well, our sin was atoned for at the cross. But but listen, when you trust Christ as your Savior, your sin credited to Christ at the cross. And at the very same time, double imputation, theologians call this. So your sin placed on Christ and Christ's righteousness. The value of that perfect life to his active obedience credited to you the one who has not perfectly obeyed your sin to Christ at the cross, his righteousness wrapped around you. Can you imagine? So when the father looks at you, rather than seeing you in the mud puddle, it is rightly said, often said it this way, he sees us through the lens of his son. He sees the righteousness of Christ wrapped around us. And we say, whom the sun sets free. How's the song go? Oh, is free indeed. That's right. I'm a child of God. Yes, I am. Yes, I am. Covered by the righteousness of Christ. Christ's active obedience. His righteousness, yes, wraps around me. Now, in verse 6, there is this, uh, a reference to this shadowy Old Testament figure called Melchizedek. Uh, he is referenced in verse 6. He is referenced in verse 10. I'm going, to, I'm going to say just a couple of things, but I'm saving 
the rest of it for later. Because in chapter 7 of Hebrews, we're going to really drill down into milk because he's all over the, the whole chapter. If we do it all now, you're going to get to chapter 7 and say, well, you already talked about that. So I'm, I'm postponing this a little bit, except for these details. In the Old Testament, you have the Levitical priesthood that we have spoken of. But then you have this guy Melchizedek show up. And again, we'll study this, who is declared by God as a priest, but he's not a Levite. So in what sense is he a priest? In the Old Testament, you see he's a priest of God Most High, interacting with Abraham. And again, we'll study this, so you'll get your mind around it. But it's a different kind of priesthood. And the emphasis is on its eternal nature. Because as we'll see in the Old Testament, Melchizedek shows up without mother or father or any reference to his past, and nor his future. So it's like a, a different kind of priesthood. And the writer here is saying, Jesus not a Levite, he's still a priest. He's a priest in a different order. Not the human kind that lived and died, but one like Melchizedek. One like Melchizedek, a different kind of priest. Again, more on this to come. Stick around. Uh, We'll we'll unwrap that gift for you. It's it's pretty amazing. And, And we'll see it later this morning as well when we celebrate communion together. So, So verse six then, quoting Psalm 110, Uh, You're a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. The emphasis is on the forever nature of this. He is a priest forever. Unlike human priests who lived and died, Christ died on the cross, rose from the dead, lives to die no more. He is a a forever high priest. Now, um, that third section then on your study notes, we've, we've seen then God ordained human high priests as forerunners. There was a point to this to be learned. Uh, Then second, God the Father appointed God the Son to be our forever high priest. And then verses 7 to 10, Jesus Christ is our perfect, faithful, and eternal high priest. A couple of details. Uh, When you look at verses 7 and 8, we find this this look at Christ's earthly life. In the days of his flesh, uh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears. People right away mentally go to the Garden of Gethsemane, probably not improperly, but I would say I wouldn't limit it there. Because when you look at Jesus, uh, truly in the fashion of Isaiah 53, uh, he is described as a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And if you study the life of Christ, you see him more than once um, overwhelmed by the brokenness of the world around him. Overwhelmed to tears. You find him in, in, uh, at the tomb of Lazarus as he's about to call Lazarus out of the grave. You remember this, Those, the Sunday school verse everybody wanted to memorize. Two words, Jesus wept. Uh, but nonetheless, uh, the, 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 the passion of Christ at that moment, the agony of his soul. You find Jesus weeping also in Luke 19 uh, on, the, on what we would call Palm Sunday as he was headed toward Jerusalem, coming down from the Mount of Olives to cross the Kidron Valley, coming back up to Jerusalem, he wept as he looked at the city. And he said, oh, if only you knew, if only you knew what day it was, your Messiah showed up. Here I am, according to Zechariah 14, your king has come. Here I am. And you didn't see it. Your eyes were blinded. You didn't even notice the day of your visitation. And Jesus wept over them. So, so more than once, a person could look at verse 7 and say, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications, yes, more than once, but certainly in the Garden of Gethsemane, looking to the cross, 
loud cries and tears to the one able to save him from death, a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. Christ, as I have in front of you there, submitted to painful and costly lessons of obedience all through his earthly life and through his atoning work. Um, Sometimes people have looked at verse 8, as you look at that with me, and verse 9, where it says learned obedience and then being made perfect. And you say, wait a minute, hold hold on, hold on. Uh, Come on, I'm a parent. Um, If I'm going to teach my kid obedience, it's because they are disobedient, those little rascals, right? So that's the context we often bring to such a discussion. I'm going to teach you some obedience, young man. You come here right now. You come here and see. I'm going to teach you to obey. I'm sure you're nicer than that. Um, So Christ learned obedience. The, the, The terms that are used here do not point to Christ learning obedience as opposed to disobedience. But the the idea of fully submitting to the Father that I spoke of a moment ago. The idea of passing a test, just as Jesus in Matthew 4 was tempted by Satan and passed the test. It doesn't describe his sinfulness, but a, a test demonstrating his full submission to God. Jesus fully passed those tests of obedience, never once, as we have read already, never once having sinned. Uh, We saw this in chapter 4, verse 15. So Christ learned obedience. There is a a discipline that involves disobedience. There is a discipline that involves training, uh, as we'll see later in Hebrews. Here, Christ learned obedience, being made perfect, having passed the test. He He became the source of eternal salvation. Now, I have in your study notes here this emphasis. Christ is the singular source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. And when I say here chiefly by exercising saving faith, I'm using that to qualify those who obey, not Christ. And here's what I mean by this. When the Bible describes obedience as here, he's a source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. Listen carefully, please. The obedience that is referenced is not the obedience of, of, of good behavior day by day but it is primarily the obedience of faith that is saving faith, trusting Christ. That is obedience number one, without which all the others are meaningless. I want you to get that, please. I want to read to help us get that. I want to read a little paragraph from another writer talking about this to all who obey him. What do you mean? Do you mean I earn it? If I behave real nice, if I go to church all the time and I'm generally a nice person and I don't swear at least every day, I mean, does that count? Am I obeying him enough? Uh, Well, no, no, that isn't it. So this other writer says this, the will of Christ that has to be obeyed is first and foremost the command to trust him, to hold fast to our hope, 3.6, to guard against a heart of unbelief, as we've seen in chapter 3, verse 12, to hold fast to our confession, and to draw near to Christ. In other words, the first and main act of obedience is to believe in the promises of God and to place your hope in him. That's saving faith. All other obedience, this writer says, according to Hebrews, is the fruit of this first and root act of obedience. So daily acts of practical obedience are the evidence of this first act of saving faith. Did did that register? Somebody tell me yes. Otherwise, I'll repeat that whole paragraph. We don't want that. So, so, So to all who obey him, yes, obey him by First of all, trusting him is your savior from sin. All other obedience flows from that. 
So, so this whole text then is about drawing near and why you can draw near to God through Jesus. It is because Christ is a greater high priest than any human high priest in the Old Testament. Not that they were worthless, they weren't. They were pointing the way to a greater high priest to come. They were mere humans, as we'll see in a few moments, prevented by death from continuing in their office. But this text presents Christ as a greater high priest who, who as again, as we'll see in a moment, brought a better sacrifice, not the blood of animals, but his own precious and pure blood, a perfect sacrifice to pay for sins once for all. So, so the invitation from all of this is to draw near. We saw this back in chapter 4, uh, verse 16. We're to draw near. We're to draw near. And we'll see it again in a moment. There's a summary here uh, I, I have given you that gives uh, one of my favorite quotes from John Newton. John Newton, of course, the author of Amazing Grace, the hymn that most Americans recognize John Newton was a, uh, the, the pilot, captain of a slave ship, and was quite good at sinning for years and years, until he was arrested, not by the police, but by the mercy and grace of God, and amazingly born again, evidence, if there is any needed, that no one is too far gone to know the amazing grace of God. So he said at the advanced age of 82, my memory is nearly gone. But these two things I remember, that I am a great sinner and Christ is a great savior. I cannot imagine greater things to remember if your memory is nearly gone. The first is not so hard to remember. There are constant reminders. I am a great sinner. But to remember the other half of that, that Christ is a great Savior. That man who had things in his past to forget, uh, rightly gave us a song called Amazing Grace. How sweet the sound. Oh, that's good. Under the section called Responding to God's Word, and as we step toward remembering Christ in communion, I've given you two elements that I think are essential responses to a text like this, where Christ is lifted up. The first is, is a response of worship that I think is called for. Do you see Christ? Do you see him as a greater high priest? Do you see his compassion? He, he can deal gently. If the human high priest could deal gently with the ignorant and wayward, so Christ invites us to come. Do you, do you see this? Do you see Christ as a greater high priest? Then, then worship, worship. And then second, the ministry of Christ as our great high priest is, is so that we would draw near in saving faith and daily relationships. So I ask, do you, do you what? Well, do you draw near? Do you do this? It's why Jesus came, that you would draw near to him. I would love for you to have your Bible open to that next text, uh, where we'll be in a few moments. We're going to pray together, and then we'll talk about communion a bit and head in that direction. But I'm going to read in a couple moments Hebrews 7, 23 to 25, which are 
in theme connected with what we have said today. So I have that open if you would in front of you. Hebrews 7, 23 to 25. But as we worship and as we draw near, I'd love to pray for us and then we will head toward communion. Would you join me in this, please? Father, I thank you so much for this text. I thank you for the Old Testament high priests who pointed the way to a greater high priest to come. I thank you for the work of Jesus on our behalf. I thank you for his righteous life, his active obedience. I thank you for his death, burial, and resurrection, where he is our representative, paid for our sin. He brought a sacrifice, not of the blood of bulls and goats, but his own. Not into an earthly tabernacle, but into a heavenly one, where our sin was atoned for once and for all. And our Father, we're amazed by this. And we honor and worship you as the God of our salvation. Thank you for a Savior, Jesus. Great Savior. The one who paid for our sin once and for all. Thank you for this. We as sinners could not come apart from him. And our Father, as we, as we think together about Jesus now and Remember Christ in receiving communion. Our Father, would you draw our hearts to yours in worship and in joyful nearness to you. So do that. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. As you know, communion is, a, is an opportunity for those who know Christ as their Savior. And here at Sunset Bible Church, we invite all those who know Christ, uh, guests or regular tenders, to join us in receiving communion. So in Hebrews seven twenty two or 23 to 25, we see a continuation, really, of today's topic. The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But he, that is Christ, holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. This is one of those little paragraphs in Hebrews that I would love to just imprint on our minds, memorize it, hear it, love it. He is able to save to the uttermost. There are twin themes inherent in the words that are used that matter. And that would be, uttermost includes both time and extent. As to time, forever. As to extent, fully. You could not be more forgiven than you are right now. You could not be saved any longer than you are already in Christ. Saved, the old song says, saved to the uttermost. Wow. All of this because Christ is your high priest. This little cracker points us to the body of Christ broken for us. Let's remember him together. And we say thank you, Lord. Thank you.
That little cup of juice points us to the blood of Christ, not the blood of bulls and goats, as we'll study. The blood of bulls and goats could never atone for our sin. But that the perfect blood of Christ is of a lamb without blemish and without spot. His blood paid for our sin. And we say thank you, Lord. Let's remember him together. A response of worship and a response of drawing near. I'd love to have you stand with me. Let's bring this time of worship to a close with prayer. Let's give thanks together. Our Father, we thank you for a Savior, the Lord Jesus. We thank you for all these things that we could look at and treasure together. And Father, I pray that by the Spirit of God that you would you would use the word of God in us in these days ahead, that even little phrases or words or ideas would would percolate through our hearts throughout the week, saved to the uttermost. Oh, thank you, Jesus, the source of eternal salvation. Thank you, Lord, that even though cell phones drop calls, our Savior never drops us. Thank you for this. Our Father, we find great joy in you. We honor and praise your great name. Help us this week as we draw near to you with confidence. All of this because of Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen. God bless you as you go. Have a great week. We'll see you very soon.